how do I consume omega-3 without hurting my omega-6 status? This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ MasterPass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. All right, so this first runner-up is from Iris from Denmark, and her question I would summarize as, how do I consume omega-3 without hurting my omega-6 status? This is her full question. Poisoning. Too much omega-3 compared to omega-6? I have for many years gotten far more omega-3 than omega-6. I've eaten an omega-3 supplement of EPA and DHA each day, and I've eaten fatty fish often each day for years. Because I grew up with an Inuit stepdad and because I heard that too much omega-6 was bad, I have for years used olive oil and coconut oil that are both low on omega-6. I have mostly eaten a few nuts and the last over about five years, no nuts, no eggs, and no liver because I've become more and more allergic to all kinds of food. Liver and eggs that are good sources of omega-6 in the form we need it as arachidonic acid and nuts are good sources of omega-6 in the plant form that the body can to some degree transform into the needed arachidonic acid form. Also, I've been eating really anti-inflammatory, for example, lots of green tea and earlier on lots of ginger, garlic, etc., but all of them I now react badly to. So I seem to have developed a lack of arachidonic acid. I have all symptoms of lack of arachidonic acid that has gotten that has all gotten better when I newly found out that I could actually eat walnuts without getting an allergic reaction. So I now go nuts in walnuts. But I want to get pregnant, and the baby, like all humans, needs both omega-3 and omega-6. As far as I have understood from your paper on your homepage about omega-3 and omega-6, the problem is that the EPA in the omega-3 blocks the activation of arachidonic acid. So I'm wondering if I can avoid that blocking effect if I eat all my omega-3 at one day a week or at one day every two weeks, and if this does not work, how can I take omega-3 without hurting my omega-6 status? Or is the hurting effect of omega-3 EPA not a question of timing, but only a question of doses in relation to omega-6? So basically my question is, if I don't want to hurt my omega-6 status through my omega-3 intake, how do I do that? Is it simply a question of taking them at separate times or is it a question of dose? And if it's a question of dose, how do I know when to start eating fish and taking my omega-3 supplement again? So this is from my nutrition and immunity video, which you guys all have access to as MasterPass members. So um, actually, the easiest way to get it is to go to eBooks, Staying Immune Through the Winter, and then on the bottom of the page, it gives you a link to the video. Which And that page also has the slides. All right, so um, arachidonic acid is found primarily in liver and egg yolks. DHA is found primarily in fish and fish liver oils. EPA is also found primarily in fish and fish liver oils. There is small amounts of DHA in egg yolks from chickens raised on pasture with high omega-3 intakes. Of course, you'll also get, you will get EPA in egg yolks if you feed the chickens fish. Now, this... Typically in your cells, you have arachidonic acid, which is a 20-carbon fatty acid, and DHA, which is a 22-carbon fatty acid that occupy their own spaces in the cell membranes. The cell is it's primarily looking at the carbon length in order to apportion a place in the membrane for arachidonic acid and a different place in the membrane for DHA. That's It's not the only thing they look at in terms 
carbon length isn't the only thing they look at, but generally speaking, it's one of the central things they look at to say, all right, we need some of this 20 carbon, we need some of this 22 carbon, and so on. Now, arachidonic acid is metabolized to prostaglandin E2, and prostaglandin E2 is best known for its initiation of inflammation. And all of the NSAIDs with the all of the NSAIDs and acetaminophen decrease the production of prostaglandin E2 from arachidonic acid. And generally, most inflammatory drugs, even if they're not NSAIDs or acetaminophen, will also do this in some way. And this is also just generally true of anti-inflammatory herbs as well. Okay, the problem with that is that prostaglandin E2 doesn't just promote the, the initiation of inflammation, it also promotes the resolution of inflammation. When it promotes the resolution of inflammation, it signals the utilization of DHA in the membrane to participate in the resolution of inflammation. So arachidonic acid and DHA are the normal constituents contributing to the resolution of inflammation together. Whereas arachidonic acid is generally stimulating the initiation of inflammation on its own. A normal course of inflammation has inflammation initiated and then it fully resolves. So you have a mild wound, watch it heal. That process is initiation of inflammation, complete resolution of inflammation once the wound is healed. If, if your healing capacity can keep up with the degree of damage, you won't even have a scar. That would be, that would be full and complete ideal optimal resolution of inflammation. And it would have depended on arachidonic acid first, but then DHA would have come in and played its role after that. The problem with NSAIDs and acetaminophen and potentially other things that counter inflammation by blocking prostaglandin E2 is that if you block the initiation of inflammation from prostaglandin E2, you also block the resolution of inflammation. You block the, the utilization of DHA secondarily to blocking the production of prostaglandin E2, and you never return to baseline. That is low-grade chronic inflammation. What do we have an epidemic of low-grade chronic inflammation? What are the most common drugs people use? NSAIDs. I rest my case. Okay. Now, there's another problem, which is that prostaglandin E2 also contributes to the integrity of all barriers. All epithelial barriers have their integrity built upon tight junctions and gap junctions, which are proteins built in response to prostaglandin E2. That's your skin. That's the blood-brain barrier. That's Everywhere that you see swelling in your body, that where those where those um, barriers are being violated, that's the gut, that's the entire GI tract, that's all of the mucous membranes. All of these things will become leaky if you don't have enough prostaglandin E2. Leaky gut. There's no evidence that leaky gut is the main driver of food intolerances, but. You will probably get leaky gut at the same time you'll get food intolerances because prostaglandin E2 is also the central molecule, along with retinoic acid derived from vitamin A, in promoting food intolerance, food tolerance in the gut. Food tolerance is not the default. It is not passive. It is not based on food being completely digested instead of leaving fragments behind. It is not based on food getting into the, uh, staying in the gut instead of getting into the bloodstream. 
Food tolerance is an active process that relies on the purposeful, incomplete digestion of food proteins and the purposeful crossing the barrier of the intestines with the food proteins to enter the gut-associated lymphoid tissue or GALT, where immune cells are actively programmed in an environment dependent on heavy production of prostaglandin E2 to teach the immune cells to tolerate the foods. No food, no tolerance. Complete digestion, no tolerance. The thing going on in food intolerances is the environment in the gut-associated lymphoid tissue becomes anti-tolerance instead of pro-tolerance. And it's not all about prostaglandin E2. You could have uh, an infection or you could have tissue damage that is signaling danger that leads to damage-associated molecular patterns or damps that overwhelm what would otherwise be a pro-tolerance milieu, but it nevertheless stands to be the case that prostaglandin E2 is necessary for the pro-tolerance milieu and that people are massively widespread on NSAIDs and disrupting that natural process. Now, EPA, the problem with it is EPA is a COX inhibitor. But how does EPA inhibit COX? That, now I want to go to my, to my other slide that I took from a, a paper on the internet. So this, this figure is showing what's going on here. You have these fatty acids in your membrane. One of the problems with EPA is that EPA is a 20-carbon fatty acid that also looks like arachidonic acid. And so we'll tend to share membrane space in the phospholipid membrane with arachidonic acid. So unlike DHA, which has its own place because it's a 22-carbon fatty acid, EPA tends to be metabolized by the same enzymes that metabolize arachidonic acid, almost like an imposter. So it's taking up arachidonic acid's place in the cell membrane, and then it's also being metabolized by phospho, uh, by the by arachidonic acid metabolizing enzymes. So what happens in arachidonic acid is in response to a signal, you free arachidonic acid from the membrane using phospholipase A2, and then you have the COX enzymes that will make PGH2, then you have... To, tissue-specific isomerases that will turn the PGH2 into one of various different compounds that include PGE2, which we were just talking about earlier. I was kind of shortcutting some of these steps and just showing you, um, you know, the summary, the summary version. So this graph is showing NSAIDs coming in here and blocking this enzyme. Aspirin has a very specific effect that acetylates the enzyme rather than just blocking it. And actually, aspirin can help promote pro-resolution compounds, but aspirin still decreases PGE2. EPA is going to decrease PGE2 because EPA is going to be hydrolyzed by phospholipase A2 instead of arachidonic acid in its place and then metabolized by COX instead of arachidonic acid in its place and turned into various imposter prostaglandins such as, uh, such as prostaglandin E reflecting EPA. Now, if you go back to literature in the 90s, they were trying to understand why the why the Inuit didn't have heart disease. And so they're coming up with this omega-3, omega-6 balance theory of inflammation. And the overwhelming theory coming out of the 90s was that you want EPA to make these alternative prostaglandins. So the idea was you can have EPA or you can have DGLA or you got these other fatty acids that will all use these enzymes to different series one, two, three of prostaglandins. 
and that that modulates the inflammatory effect of them. That that whole hypothesis should be completely displaced by the last 20 years of research showing what I was telling you before about the active resolution of inflammation and the active processing of associated lymphoid tissue. Almost everything taught in the 90s forward, and even what you find in textbooks now, is mostly reflecting outdated outdated understandings of the of of inflammation um and it's not everything old is outdated but this specifically is extremely out not this figure right here but the idea that you want the idea that that you you want epa to be competing in this process i i think is a completely out totally outdated understanding of inflammatory processes okay so the issue here, so to go back to Iris's question, Iris's question is, do I have to time the EPA in, in relation to the omega-6 in some way so that I can get it in without causing this interference? And what I just showed you is that not really. It's not about you eating the food in an acute sense. It's about the cell membrane content of these fatty acids. What you want is to have a, a robust enough arachidonic acid cell membrane content that it will not be overwhelmed by EPA competition at the time that, that phospholipases free the fatty acid from the membrane for the purpose of cell signaling. And so I think it's a degree, I think it's you're better off ignoring the timing issue because it doesn't matter whether they're interacting directly and acutely in the gut and on the way there. It matters what is your cumulative cell membrane content over time. Okay. Now that raises a different timing issue. And we don't have anywhere near perfect knowledge of, of this timing issue, but we, we have some data that can be that can be talked about. I, I wrote this uh, article on the Weston A. Price site called um, AG, AJCN Publishes a New PUFA Study That Should Make Us Long for the Old Days. And if you scroll down, you'll see some data on long-term uh, PUFA accumulation in tissues. Now, most studies on this topic are short, and they use red blood cell phospholipid fatty acids, which... Red blood cell only lasts a mean life of 120 days, so you really can't capture any long-term effect with red blood cells. And I don't want to imply that adipose tissue gives us a global understanding of what happens in every tissue in the body, but it's the only thing we have in terms of the effect of a years-long cumulative effect of PUFAs in tissues. And we don't have it with omega-3, we have it with, with linoleic acid, but what the LA Veterans Administration Hospital study, the only such study that was long enough with with a you know randomized controlled trial on a significant number of people to look at this, they showed that the percentage of adipose tissue that is linoleate on a high linoleate diet basically keeps increasing um, to never quite reach a perfect plateau over eight years. But you can you can certainly see that most of the effect you know you're starting to plateau um, after around three or four years. Uh, so you know so 
the slope of this line at the eight-year mark is much lower than the slope of this line at the one, two, three-year mark. Um, so that's number one. And then number two, we have a rat study where they fed diets, fed rats safflower oil for four months and then switched them over a diet of beef fat. And you can see that it it basically took about, let's say, um, let's say, call this a year to fully bottom out. So these these rats are being fed safflower oil for four months, and it is going up to sixty percent of adipose tissue linoleic acid, which is, um higher than what we were getting in the humans on on the high on the high linoleic acid diet right it's they were getting up to 30 something percent adipose linoleate um you know so i we don't have humans coming off of it but i would note a couple things so one is for the rats it's it seems to be taking about twice as long as they were on the diet to remove the effect in their adipose tissue. You could say a year and extrapolate to humans, but I'm not, you know, I'm not sure. Like the, the rats are obviously responding a little differently by having a faster, a much more rapid and greater magnitude enrichment of their adipose linoleate. Um I'm inclined to to look at the the humans and say, you know, you're pretty much maxing out the effect at eight years. Maybe to reverse that, it's going to take somewhere between one year and 16 years. There's a lot of assumptions here, right? Like, I'm not sure if linoleate and, and EPA are accumulating an adipose tissue at the same rate. I'm not sure if adipose EPA is a good model for the phospholipid EPA in the long-lived tissues that aren't red blood cells. There's a lot of uncertainties here, right? So I'm going to give you a giant gap, and I'm going to say... Probably somewhere between, probably by one year, you are you are massively changing your your cell membrane concentrations in most tissues, and probably by fifteen years, you are you know, all, let's say um, somewhere, let's say fifteen years, or let's say maybe one to two times the amount of years that you spent on a very high EPA diet, um. <clears throat> And so I think, you know, other than that, you have to kind of go by your, whatever your key performance indicator is for your health. So in this particular case, you're looking at increasing food sensitivities. Uh, that's not necessarily about the arachidonic acid EPA balance, but if it is, it you know it has to be the case if you've been years off of the extremely high fish diet it has to be the case that your that your membrane fatty acids are substantially better now than then and it isn't necessarily a case driven by the, the by the uh by the EPA arachidonic acid balance so i think if if you're greatly unsure of the issue then you really want cell membrane phospholipid EPA and arachidonic acid concentrations. I know Omega Quant offers that. I don't know if they're available in Denmark. 
that would be the ideal thing. I wouldn't neglect retinoic acid. I wouldn't neglect gut infections. I wouldn't neglect tissue damage. I wouldn't neglect uh, the many other things. I mean, you, you have... I think in a case like this, you know, you have to be hypothesis driven, but then you have to be data driven. So if you act on the hypothesis, is it helping resolve the food intolerances? And um and I and I think I think it, the hypothesis, you know, if your EPA levels are substantially altered for the next 10 or 15 years, you're not necessarily falsifying the hypothesis. But you also have to think about it in terms of what is the actionable thing I can do that resolves the issue. Because if the hypothesis is, if it doesn't give you some actionable step that resolves the issue, then then you have to focus. You have to move your focus somewhere else anyway. So I would say, ideally, it, it would be extremely helpful to get phospholipid arachidonic acid and EPA concentrations are going to be in your red blood cells. Um, you know, but that, that should be somewhat reflective because it's, that's going to be somewhat reflective of longer term tissues like the bone marrow to some degree. Um, and so I, I think that's the, the best thing to go on. And it's, it's probably the best indicator you have also of what is going to be in your milk. So, you know, if your if your tissues are very enriched in DHA and arachidonic acid, you don't need to worry about your dietary intake that much in terms of feeding your baby and the breast milk. And so so I that's why I think that's why I think you 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 know, if you, if you don't get results based on modulating your fatty acids, you really want to to do to run a test to see what it's like because that takes up so care of so many questions like is this a good hypothesis to explain the food intolerances is this a uh, a concern for pregnancy and lactation you know it it may be that it's a very good hypothesis to explain the food intolerances and that you need to be more strict about decreasing EPA and increasing uh, arachidonic acid intake i you know you also you can't rely on nuts and linoleic acid if you don't know how good of a converter you are, if you're a poor converter, um, the the system that converts linoleic acid to arachidonic acid is the same system that converts EPA to DHA. So if you're a poor converter, you can have uh, you can have greater EPA accumulation than you would expect, and also less value of consuming nuts and seeds than than you would expect. Um, so I think data would be I, I think data is highly useful and borderline necessary in this case. Uh, but you know, to, to answer your question very specifically, you don't need to worry about timing of the fatty acids in your diet at all. You need to worry about cumulative concentrations in your tissues that are likely to be heavily influenced by the last year of what you've been eating and to some degree somewhat influenced by the last 5, 10, 15 years of what you've been eating. So... Thank you, Iris, for your question. Hope that helped. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ MasterPass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. If you want to become a MasterPass member so that you can participate in the next live Q&A, 
or so that you can have access to the complete recording and transcript of each Q&A session, you can join at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash masterpass. You can save 10% off the subscription price for as long as you remain a member by signing up at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com slash Q&A. That's Q&A spelled out as Q-A-N-D-A. These links are in the description.